Hello and welcome to the It's Not Personal podcast, a podcast about making work more engaging, more fulfilling, and ultimately more human by taking the ego out of leadership. I am here with Ken Grady, a Fortune 500 CIO and business leader, as well as gentleman farmer and snappy dresser. And I'm here with Seth Rigoletti, my always friend and often collaborator and co-conspirator. Seth is an executive and communications coach who's worked with a number of different organizations and whose superpower is helping people understand the difference between what's being said and what's being heard. Okay, welcome back to It's Not Personal, a podcast about bringing your human to work. I'm, I'm here today with Ken Grady, uh, as we've been every day now for these podcasts. It's been a joy to be together. Ken Grady is a good friend. He is a CIO, uh, a gentleman farmer, <laughs> all-around good guy, uh, eternal optimist. And, uh, you know, Ken, Ken is somebody who has personally, in his own way, been very much responsible, although he is in technology, to bring the human more into his workplace and actually learning how to, like, bring people along as leaders. Well, and ourselves. I mean, that's basically our own human. Right. I like to say it's like, bring your dog to work days. Bring your human. I'm here with Seth Rigoletti, who is a good friend and co-conspirator, often collaborator. Uh, an executive leadership and communications coach with really the superpower, as I say, of helping somebody understand the difference between what's being said and what's being heard. Mm. And I've really been looking forward to this session. You know, even as we planned originally the idea of this podcast, this was something, in fact, this was one of the inspirations for me about thinking about this. And we teased at it a little bit in last week's episode, but I want to set the context for this. Wait, wait, give them the name. Well, this is the the red pill, blue pill moment. Now, we all, I'm, I'm sure many of us are probably familiar with the Matrix. I don't even remember which is the red pill, which is the blue pill. The red pill okay. is the one that wakes you up. Okay. And the blue pill keeps you asleep. Okay. And that's that's the thing. And it's this, and of course, lots of people have used this metaphor in different contexts. But the the context we're talking about today is, has there been a moment in your career, in your relationships, in your work, that changed your perspective fundamentally, Mm. that shifted the context in which you were operating. And certainly over the course of any of our professional lives, I think that, you know, we continue to evolve. But there are, for me anyway, there's been a couple of these, probably more than a couple, but there's there's been these moments that have really shifted how I approach a situation, and I'm gonna I'm gonna lead by sharing one of mine, and I'm gonna ask you to share yours as well, Seth. But and I gotta give credit. Now I have a couple of children. I have a now 19 year old daughter. Uh, who's a sophomore in university. I have a 14 year old son. But my daughter, as she's growing up, now we're, we're different generations, obviously. Right. My daughter and I grew up. I don't know in a context. You know, I grew up in Georgia. Um, upper middle class. You know, I was, was blessed with a lot of opportunities. But, you know, I didn't have a lot of exposure to LGBTQ community growing up in suburban Atlanta in the 70s and 80s. And that changed over time. I mean, my roommate in college, you know, shared with me that he was bi and I, you know, got to know a lot of different people from a lot of different walks of life and and have always respected and supported, certainly. But the thing I had struggled with, to be totally transparent, 
was what I, I guess I'd call the pronoun thing, gender identity. Yeah. And you know, this was a few years ago now, but I was talking with my daughter, who was probably in her mid-teens at that time, early to mid-teens. And she's progressive, and she's, you know, as I said, a different generation, different space. Um, and she said, Dad, she said, do you like to be called Ken or Kenneth? And I said, well, the only person that ever could get away with calling me Kenneth was my mom and only if I was in trouble. Right. And she said, if you expect people to choose to, or to respect your choice as to what to call you, why won't you respect others? Mm. And I got to say, it was an oh shit moment. I realized it didn't, it wasn't about me. Mm. It was this moment that just fundamentally shifted my perspective to say, oh, this is about respecting others where they are. Right. It's not about me understanding. It's not about me identifying. It's not about me. They don't need me to come along on the journey. They just are asking for respect. It's an interesting example. I think, you know, my my um, wife's stepfather, my, my father-in-law, uh, changed his name by the time he was in his late 60s, mid 60s, he changed it from, he he always went by Larry. The whole time I'd known him, he'd been Larry his whole life. And he changed it to Lawrence because he felt like, he felt like he never, he, ne he didn't get the respect that he mm. wanted from Larry. He wanted to be a Lawrence. And it was a pain in the ass. Mm. We all like complained and talked about how like, ah, I wish he were just Larry. And, and everybody would ask him why, and he would very patiently say why. But then, you know, when you put it in this context, none of our business, right? <laughs> it's not my name. Right. Right? If this is how you want to be referred to, then this is how you want to be referred to. And it's hard, right, to yeah. – to, because we, we're given these, these things that change is hard, changing behavior is hard. We don't want to get it wrong. We like things to be easy. And, and with the gender identity stuff, it it became, um, very quickly it became, I don't want to, or I shouldn't have to, right? Um, I shouldn't have to call you, I shouldn't have to recognize that. But yes, actually you should. You now, should. What's, what's hard is that in order to do that, you have to do what you just did, which is you have to like recognize that, oh, this isn't about me at all. Yeah. Right. This isn't about me at all. And I can be generous. And this is actually I call these like they're like low cost things. Yeah. Right? I mean, how much extra effort did it cost you to say Lawrence rather than Larry? They're both two syllables. Right. <laughs> it, it was it was surprisingly difficult. <laughs> it felt if I in my head, it was very costly. Well, that's because we've, like, we've, we've gotten into a habit. We've yes. gotten into a routine and then you're having to retrain your neuron pathways, whatever. But more than that, in my own moment, I realized that not only could I offer that to the other humans that, I'm, that I coexist with, I could model it. Totally. And so I started adding my pronouns in my signature file and introducing myself that way to remove that clarity and also say, it's okay if you want to ask me to respect your choice. Like a, a, a passive signal to say... I'm I'm not only okay with that, I welcome that. Yeah. And it was it was just it was a moment and I've I've told that story more than once and I give my daughter deep credit and boy is it humbling to realize that here I am in my, you know, mid room forties 
And my 14, 15 year old daughter is still teaching me things um, about the world and how to interact with others. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, Wordsworth said, child is father to the man. Yeah. And it is true. Right? It is true. So, so that was my moment. So I, you know, I, I challenged you ahead of time to think of, do you have your own perspective shift that happened? And it could be, you know, completely different kind of. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, um, when I thought about this idea, I, I had, um, I had a profound moment in my life when I was in my, uh, uh, thirties, late thirties, where I realized all of a sudden that everything I thought about who I was and what I was going to do and how that was going to happen and what was, what was available to me, all of that shifted. And, you know, it, it, I want to say it shifted all at once. It wasn't quite a red pill, but it was like, there was this realization where, um, so I was, I was a teacher and I had been a teacher for 15 years. And as far as I knew, I was going to be a teacher for 30 more. Mm. Like it just was, I, it's, it's a very hard career to break out of. And it's a very weird thing Like you get in a cycle and you're not really in everyone else's rhythm. So I just was thinking this would be my life. My dad was a teacher. My mom was a teacher mm. in my life. And a good friend of mine at the school left. Uh, he said, I'm leaving. And I never thought he would leave. And he's like, I'm, I'm going. I'm going to go work in India and I'm going to work over there. And I said, you can't leave. <laughs> I said, <laughs> you're not the one who's going to leave. I was, was going to leave before you, but now I can't leave. And he said, why not? And something about that question was just... I know it sounds trite, but it was just like, yeah, why not? And when I got in my head that it was something that was possible that I could actually leave, all of a sudden everything started to reorganize in mm. my life. And I felt like I was at a crossroads. I felt like I could go left and stay in teaching and be in teaching for 30 more years or even 40 more years and be fine, right? Or I could go right. And there's this huge unknown, mm. huge unknown. I don't know what was going right, but I knew I wanted to go right. And that that was a moment where I really woke up and realized, oh, you know, we are so limited by the assumptions that we make and the assumptions we make about what's possible for us personally, what we're capable of doing and what is available to us internally and externally. And then also what's possible out there. We are so limited I think that that what you just touched on is really at the heart of this, this uh, how we ground ourselves in our assumptions, how we approach the world, how we approach our careers, how we approach one another. Mm. You know, the assumptions we have around what work is supposed to be like, oh, what, what yeah. our career is supposed to be like. We have assumptions that there's a roadmap. You know, and if you do A, B, and C, you'll be successful. If you do E, F, and G, you won't, right. you know, or some combination. And that challenge, uh, and you can say the same thing about relationships, and you can say the same thing about, I mean, friendships and spouse and whatever, children, um, uh, or developments, businesses, these assumptions that we ground ourselves in, you know, often they're based on good experience. They're based on wisdom and teaching, but... When we challenge those assumptions and we're open to hearing, you know, maybe that, that why not question was yeah. that eye opener for you. Yeah. And, and there was something about the way 
something about the way that he asked it, right? Where it was real curiosity. It wasn't <clears throat> accusatory. It wasn't judgmental. It was really like, oh, why, why not? Like, why not? Yeah, it reminds me of a story. You know, I was, I was coaching somebody on my team. This was years ago, um, but a development leader, delivery leader. It was a software technology team, but I said, you know, we were, we were facing, I, who knows what the problem was. We were building something, delivering a, something, software. And I said, what do you think we should do? And he said, well, if it was up to me, I'd do yada, yada, yada. I said, what if I told you it was up to you? Right. Anyway, what? <laughs> and, right. and I said, yeah, no, it's, it's up to you. Well, what do we, what do you think we should do? You've got the expertise, mm. right? You, you don't need to wait for guidance from above. You don't need to wait for, mm. you know, some, somebody else to tell you this is, this is really up to you. And he had assumed that, you know, with a group of people that were working on it, like, you know, that they, they had a direction and the, the reality was at the time they didn't. And he had the insight, mm. but he also had assumed that his voice wasn't welcome. So that's an interesting example, right? Because this is, this is something I admire so much about your leadership style is that you, you and it's very confusing, by the way, to many people who, <laughs> who start hear. off working with yeah. you because, because they're like, well, Ken didn't tell me what to do. And I'm like, well, Ken, Ken wants you to, Ken wants you to tell him what you want to do. Yeah. And it's like, but how, how will I do that if, I don't know what Ken wants. And I'm like, oh, you know the outcome that you want, right? And and your willingness to empower them, right? Your willingness to trust them in that moment. Where does that come from? Well, I mean, there's that, you know, famous Steve, I assume it's true, Steve Jobs quote, that I don't hire smart people to tell them what to do. I hire smart people so they can tell me what to do, right? Um, which is... Yeah, I wonder if the, he actually operated like that. I mean, I think he... he <laughs> you do wonder. He likes... He definitely... He definitely surrounded himself by excellent people, yeah. right? You do wonder. You hear stories about how they actually operated. But whether or not it was true and whether or not it was apocryphal, I, I really do believe that. You know, I've had the, the the privilege, the blessing, and I don't know what this says about me, but everywhere I've worked over my career, I've worked with people that have a lot to teach me, that are smarter than me in a lot of ways, more educated than me in a lot of ways. And again, that might say something about my smarts or education. But the openness to it and, and the inviting it and saying, hey, like this is this model of teaming that we do um, where, you know, we, we all have our own expertise. And I think we'll talk about this in another episode but a little bit deeper, but we all have our own expertise. And if we listen to one another and right. learn or willing to challenge our own assumptions around what I think you should be doing or what you think I should be doing, it creates this. This atmosphere of trust. I, I, so I want to bring something up. We didn't talk about this in the pre-meeting. In our, in our planning for this one? Okay. So the, um, you, as a leader, as, as a, a male leader, you are phenomenal about supporting, picking, supporting, and advocating for women leaders in your organization. How, what, tell me, tell me about that because that's a big red pill moment for many, many yeah. people in the company is that they don't, there's this assumptions bias that, you know, just permeates corporate culture sometimes that where they're just like, well, she's just not, you know, she doesn't have what it takes or she's not whatever. And well, I think, so we think about this out loud and deliberately, which I think is really important. Number one, because we all should recognize that if you're in the technology space, there is an underrepresentation of female leadership. 
Uh, if you're in the C-suite, more generally, there's an underrepresentation of female leadership. Now, there's a lot of elements of diversity, but this is one that I think that is obvious and detrimental to business and the boardrooms and leadership and just in so many ways. And there's a lot of things I think that just, number one, naming it out loud gives you some opportunity to have a conversation around mm. it. And, you know, and I have a lot of reasons for having passion around this, not only because my daughter is studying computer science, political science, she wants to go into this, this area as well. Whether or not I have a daughter, I would still advocate for this, by the way, because it creates better outcomes. There is so much data that shows a diversity of perspective leads to better outcomes because you think more broadly, you think more holistically as a team. And in our space, we really have named very specifically actually three dimensions of diversity that we target and measure and hold ourselves accountable to. Mm. There are plenty, right? I mean, one that, you know, I love hiring veterans, for example. I am a veteran. And I know that veterans, if you're in the military in any form, you are taught how to show up, how to support one another, right. you know, in a lot of ways. But that's not one of the areas that's as easy to measure. And it's, although we have programs around that and I have a lot of energy around that, there are three very specific areas. One is female leadership. Mm. And because we know there's an underrepresentation in this space and we want to both. And we've done some really deep analysis as to where some of the challenges are. What it means is you got to start early in the talent pipeline. Because they don't just happen overnight. So you got to be recruiting in this space in areas where you're attracting a diverse candidate pool, where you're not limiting yourself to a demographic that is not representative of the constituency. So that's one, female leadership. The second is actually ethnic or geographic diversity. Mm. So on my leadership team, for example, 50% of us, including myself, have lived or worked outside the United States. Mm. So we're exposed to different cultures. We might come from different cultures. It gives us a breadth of thinking about, you know what? What works in the U.S. market won't work in Japan mm. or won't work in South Africa. And you're this you're you're working at a global company. So yeah. this is actually relevant. It's yeah. relevant. It's even when I wasn't, it's still important, but it is relevant at working at a global company. And the third is diversity of industry experience, because and this is specific, not specific to technology, but it's specific to kind of the for-profit side of, of industry, which is Hey, uh, the travel industry and hospitality industry have solved a lot of problems that fast moving consumer goods could benefit, that medical devices could benefit, that, you know, and so just bringing that diversity of perspective. As I said, there are other elements of diversity. And I started out by talking about LGBTQ and supporting that mm -hmm. um, and creating safety and, and, and uh, acceptance and belonging within that. I mentioned veterans. There's a bunch of dimensions, but these are three very visible very specific areas that I think we can um, specifically target and address within our, as a leader. Uh, right. And in that time, you know, what I've seen you do is I've seen you, it's funny, you're very adroit at this. Like you don't, you don't spend a lot of energy explaining. You just make space for these leaders and you just say, we're going to let this person go. And you protect them when they need to be protected. In other words, when other people around the organization go after them, you step in. But for the most part, you just let them figure it out. And you support them in that, trying to figure it out. Do you agree with that? I mean, you know, when you say protect them, I certainly, the way that that happens is through mentorship, through development opportunities, through putting them in uncomfortable situations sometimes to grow. That's true of any leader, not just um a female leader on the team. 
but you know, certainly making sure that we're actually the biggest thing that we do is just talk about it. Mm. And you said it, we just create space for that conversation. Yeah. So there's also, I think, um, organizational red pill, blue pill moments. Right. You yeah. know, this isn't just something that happens at an individual level, either as a leader, rising leader. But I mean, the most obvious one these days was COVID. And, mm. you know, pre-COVID, lots of folks, lots of industries thought that things had to be done a certain way in a way that relied on everybody being in the office at the same time, right? Or everybody going to that trade show or just a lot of things that required uh, physical closeness, proximity. Managers had to see their people. Right. To make sure they were being productive, right, to work on right. the same thing, you know, and that's how we were going to manage. And then we had this moment. Now, this is a different one. This was not about a choice. This was something that was thrust upon us. Mm. And suddenly, now, while there were plenty of frontline workers and essential workers that still had to have physical proximity to take care of others, to stock shelves, to deliver, you know, but so many roles turned upside down and... Suddenly, you couldn't manage by walking around and looking to see which people were in the office, you know, which ones were clocking out early, whatever. You suddenly had to manage by outcomes. Mm. Oh, the, can we just pause there? Because yeah. that's a that's a big that's a big thing right there. So, what do you mean? First of all, what do you mean by manage by outcomes? And second of all, what was an assumption about that? before COVID that was blocking people from saying that? The, so the first piece first, so managing by outcomes is really, if you can't, I think, well, maybe weaving this together, but I think there were a lot of folks that wanted to see, and I know organizations that shockingly, even now still want to go back to this, but if you're not at your seat in your desk, looking at your screen, banging on a keyboard, how do I know you're productive? Right. Right. Oh, you're always up and getting coffee. Oh, you're you're always 15 minutes late. Right. right? And and because they could see you coming into the parking lot or leaving the parking lot 20 minutes early and you might have to go get your kid. And Lord knows, even in the before times, you know, many of us were logging in later on at night and doing further work. Right. But suddenly, OK, without those triggers, without those signals. Managers were really thinking about, well, what does success look like for this person in this role, this copywriter or this coder or something? Mm. And it became the quality of the product, which is, by the way, what it should have been all along, rather than how many hours are you sitting in your desk, right? Really, what I care about is the quality of that outcome. So so there's a thing in this that's hard to to talk about, and it's it's part of the reason why this is so... Um, confusing for companies right now where they're like, well, we're going to all be back in the office or we're not all going to be back. You know, it's like this whole like weird seesaw. The, the thing that's hard is that a lot of times it seems to me people don't really know what the outcome is. Mm -hmm. This is like getting back to the joke about, you know, the point of a meeting is to have a meeting. Yeah. Sometimes like, you know, I'm, I'm going to make you sit at your desk for nine hours straight and not get up and have a coffee break because 
because like I don't really know what you do mm. and I don't really know how to measure what you do and like it's a mystery to me but I just don't want anyone coming by and seeing you not at your desk and blaming me yeah what are the optics on that yes. oh god oh, what are the optics I, I've right. heard that so many times over the course of my career right. well, what are the optics I was like I don't care I care about the outcomes that's what I really care about but that's something that I think is so so getting back to this idea of there are actual measurable outcomes. You are trying to do projects. You are actually trying to accomplish things, right? And I think what it's done, and you started out by introducing me as the eternal optimist, which is true, but <laughs> what I'm hopeful, let's put it that way, what I'm hopeful that the the mass learning, the mass takeaway from this is we've shifted the language, we've shifted the measures of success through this past couple of years of COVID because we've had to, and I'm hopeful that it's sticky in organizational culture. Well, let's, let's actually, let's break that down. Cause I think it'd be important for us to actually understand what we mean mm. when we say this change, because it, there's always going to be people coming into the office and there's always going to be people who want to work from home. And in fact, before COVID you had a distributed workforce. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's you true. had people who would zoom in or whatever they did, teams in or whatever the, the the label was. Yeah. Right. But that was seen as a necessary evil. Right. 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 And I remember. I mean, I know this. You were working on this before COVID, but I remember sitting in a meeting where there somebody was on video. Everybody else was sitting around a table and nobody looked at the person on the camera and the person on the camera was just like, I couldn't hear, like, like trying to. It was a great leveler, you know, for the, the folks that worked in the office before, you know, said, uh, talked about what they lost when we went to distributed working. The folks that worked in other locations Talk, talked about what they gained. What they gained, right. And you asked me the question about what were the assumptions that were holding us back in that it's it's this thing that the quote-unquote best outcomes came from us all being physically co-located for every activity. And now I do want to differentiate because there right. are things where I am not saying that, like, there's not times where you're more productive when you're physically, you know, near each other, when you're innovating, when you're whiteboarding and brainstorming, when you're breaking bread together and building relationships. All of those things are absolutely true, and they really do create valuable uh, outcomes when you're you're able to come together. But we just assumed that it was always better when you were physically in physical proximity. And, right. you know, we, we assumed that that was the best way to manage. Again, because we we assumed it because we never actually investigated it. We never actually asked ourselves the question of what are we actually. We never got to the. We never had that friend that was right. leaving that said, why not? Why not? Or if that person did say it, that person was quickly shown the door. Because, <laughs> because look, it, it is it is actually, I mean, part of what, what is so uh, amazing about COVID in, in, in the pandemic and what it did for society is it, it made it, it, it wasn't a discussion. Like nobody, right. nobody had to sit down. There was no committee that said, what do you think we should do? Right. It was like, everybody's got to go home. <laughs> and Ken, can you get everybody working from home? And you were like, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> right. Right. But once you do it, once you do it, that genie's out of the bottle. Like you yeah. can't put that back in. Yeah. It is like you can't say with a straight face, 
we can't do that. Yeah, and it, it, there's a, a piece too that you, you sort of touched on earlier, which you said your red pill, blue pill moment wasn't a moment, it was actually a buildup. Mm. And I would say if COVID, if the, the lockdown or distributed work had lasted two or three weeks, it, we would have gone back to normal. There would have been right. just, even though we would have learned something, we would have ignored it right. as humans. The longer it went on, once you get into months and then a year plus, I think that that learning, that realization, that waking up to, oh, crap, we've really changed the way that we, ah, you know, these these moments can be um, an extended period of time. And it's really the looking back and being able to examine your assumptions and willing to acknowledge that your assumptions need to change. So so coming back to this red pill moment, the thing with the with this idea of taking a red pill in in the matrix is that once you've taken it, you can't you can't look at you can't see it the same way anymore. Yeah. It's gone, right? You can only like just kind of like the Ken and Kenneth, right? Like it's like you you can't pretend that that's not right. your daughter opened that doorway and now you can and the same thing is true from an organizational perspective, it would require somebody ignoring the reality to say, no, 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 we have to, we, we can only be more productive if everybody's in the space. Why? Right. Why? Why do we think that? Because we're already being productive. We're already being successful. Now, what's interesting, and I think would be nice, is if that conversation about when do we need to be back together? Yeah. What is actually, you know, when do I actually need that physical space, right? And I think we're, you know, this is an example that's real for so many of us, so many that are listening, I'm sure. And we're going to continue to learn because we haven't figured it all out yet, right? Oh, what we is, haven't? Well, <laughs> that's why maybe we somebody the has. We, that's the whole point of the podcast. The podcast was figure this out. It's funny because I was actually talking to somebody from, uh, let's just say, a large uh, Silicon Valley company um, that we all use to search every day. And they were like, oh, yeah, now we're on like version 37 of our kind of next phase of hybrid. And I was like, well, if y'all haven't figured it out, I don't feel so bad about yeah, not figuring right. it out yet either. But, you know, I think that it, it has um, woken us up to the fact that old assumptions are going to need to continue to evolve. Right. You know, in a way that I think is a really useful um, because this is no longer about, well, IT can work that way and sales can work a different way and you know, marketing. This is really like we're all in this together and we got like we're going to figure this out in, in some interesting ways as we go forward. And, I, you know, it's great. I mean, technology has enabled us to continue forward momentum in different ways. To This is the, the fundamental of this one is that technology has allowed us to carry on and build human connection even when we're challenged with really scary global medical, you know, kind of pandemic situation. Yes. I mean, there's all kinds of things, right? So there's the the medical, there's the global, the 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 health risks, um, there's the the whole part about um, people leaving work and, and moving around. But as we said last time, <laughs> the software is not the point. The technology is not the point. It's right. the people that are the point. Right. And keeping ourselves grounded in that has allowed us to challenge those assumptions. So I'm, so I'm going to share something I've been thinking about with this. And I wrote a little bit about this the other day because um, I was I was reading an article about this 
you know, working remotely, working in the office, people like it was some crazy poll where like, I, I'm not going to get it right, but it was like 50% of the people wanted to work in the office and 50% of the people wanted to work at home. And, you know, that well, maybe it was like 35, 35 in some, you know, it was like some 30%, like it was some crazy, like distributed equally around all these different things. But I was like, you know what? At the end of the day, it comes down to, do I feel like you're trying to control me or do I feel like you trust me? Yeah. And, and the people, the, the bosses mm. who want workers to come back into the office are worried. This is the um, JP Morgan world, right? Mm. Like they're worried, like if they're not in the office, I can't ride them and control them. And, and the people who want to stay work at home, they don't necessarily, I don't know if they necessarily only want to be at home, but they just don't want to be told when to come in the office. And you know what the worst example of this is? Hmm. You can come to the office on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and you have to work from home on Wednesdays and Fridays. <laughs> You're really finite control. Like, it's like this super, like... It's like you get the worst of both worlds. Well, I had this conversation. I I got a whole name names, but I had this conversation with with a colleague, the peer, and so Ken, you know, we okay, we're going to enter this new phase, and we we have to tell people what we expect of them from you know kind of hybrid. I said, "Uh, okay, I told him, be where you need. He said, well, no, no, people want to be more prescriptive. They want like you know, so they guidelines like how many days a week. I said, I don't care. He said, no, I mean, but people, like, they're going to be uncertain. And I said, I don't think so. I said, look, I have this weird philosophy. I only hire adults. Right. That's the end of the philosophy. Well, like, you, so adults know where they need to be to be most productive. I think, I think to make that point even sharper, you hire adults and you treat them like adults. Because <laughs> you can hire adults and treat them like children and you end up with a bunch of children. So this idea of, like, I hire adults and then I... I asked them to act like adults. Act like adults. And if they don't, we will absolutely hold accountable, sure. of course. But, yeah, it's a whole different conversation. But it gets back to that that example of, like, I hire smart people and I let them tell me what they need to do, right? Because they're smart. Right. And, you know, I think this is just a loop it back and ground it in kind of the premise of our podcast is bringing the human back to work or bringing the human to work is, yeah, we work with human. Maybe we should be more specific. We work with human adults. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And, and treating them, trusting and treating them, them that way right. creates this atmosphere where they know they can also treat you that way. Again, like we said before, I think it's, you know, they can tell you what they need from you for support and, you know, ask for that support and then also contribute their ideas and, you know, kind of the, to the to ongoing success of the organization. And it's just a it's it's an oddly novel approach to organizational. I mean, I, I would even I would even culture. say radical, like <laughs> like it's kind of a radical thing, which is which is weird. It feels almost subversive. It's weird. But, you know, when you think about the the the. You know the the growth of of corporations in in America, at least in in this uh, trend of efficiency and productivity as being the trend that throughout the twentieth century. Like, how can we get more out of you know more product out of these people mm. and have 
fewer people doing the thing. It's like this whole, you know, you're trying to narrow it down in the scope and lean it up and like get the most output you can. And and there was a um a real dehumanization yeah. of of the the corporate world, which you know, it's which is why they had to like pay more and the golden handcuffs and all that stuff that, that would be created. If you think about this, we expand on this red pill thing. And you were talking to a leader and you wanted to offer that leader a red pill. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It, What's the choice? It's it's this or this. You can you can ask them, you can say, here, like you can take this pill and it's gonna change everything about how you see the world, how you lead. Or you could continue to do it the way you want it, the way you've been doing it. The way you've been doing it, and the way in that and there's a lot written about this, but you know, we 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 had optimized our businesses for the industrialization. Mm. And then we entered this knowledge worker era, this knowledge, you know, technology driven era, and without changing the way that we approach the work and organizational design and leadership philosophy. And I think that's the myth. I think that was the myth or the opportunity now, as we move forward is recognizing that the nature of work in many cases has shifted significantly, but the nature of leadership is lagging behind. Say that again. So the nature of work, the work that we do, the products that we build, the customer interactions has changed fundamentally over the last certainly two years, but I would argue over the last 25 years as technology has become pervasive and every company is a technology basis. But the way we choose to organize and lead has not kept up. In what way? We're still leading a lot of organizations the way that, you know, Henry Ford set up his organization with, right. you know, cogs in the machine and replaceable parts. And again, there's, as we've talked about before, there's a lot of good to optimization and efficient. Don't get me wrong. I, I love efficiency. But we have closed off the opportunity for good ideas to come from anywhere in the organization for conversations to happen, not top down, but, you know, yeah. function to function and, and more naturally. So, th so this is something you brought this up a couple of times. So let's actually name this piece. I think one of the red pill things you could offer a leader is what if you don't know the answer? <laughs> what if, what if your team has an answer that you don't have? What if it's not actually your job to tell them what to do? What if it's their job to tell you what they want to do? That's a big, that's a big what if, right? And it is, it is such a challenge to the ego, mm. um, which is as a leader, you know, thinking that you don't have the expertise of somebody in your team, it can be a challenge, right? And I think this is, and I've, I've coached leaders through this or rising managers that are struggling with us, that think that they should be able to uh, provide expert advice on anything that their team is responsible for. But they have to be an expert on anything that anybody in their team does so they can step in. And there's probably a point in your, you know, young management life where that's that's likely true because you probably were on the team, you got promoted from the team, you had that expertise. As you rise, though, and as you step into senior leadership roles and as you're responsible for a broader portfolio of things, there will absolutely be moments where you don't know. And so what do you do about that? Well, you surround yourself with smart people. 
that have that expertise. You say, I rely on your expertise, and then you give them the trust to allow them to offer that expertise mm -hmm. to you. Uh, not without question, not without, look, I've done, I think I've done almost every job in IT uh, over the course of my career, except network engineering. It's one job I've never done. I don't understand it. I tell them, speak to me in small words and use primary colors. Like, you know, help me understand. It's a mystery to me. I mean, I understand the fundamentals, but like, you know, this is not my center of expertise. And so I rely on them and they know that. And they can bring me, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of, uh, that expertise. But it, I think it is a real struggle to get to that point where you realize that on any given topic, you probably aren't the smartest person in the room. I would, I would go even one step further. If you are, that might be a bad thing. That's often the case, right? Where because you actually need somebody smarter than you. It's well, it's it's it, there's that, and also, it's no good if the best the team can do is be as smart as you. Yeah, you you want you want to lift people up and make them make as a whole make all of us smarter. Well, and think about you know what the impact of that is, mm -hmm. right? If you structure it that way, where you're uh, lifting people up, as you said, making making all of us smarter through the aggregate. You know, we talk about what more what being what bringing your human to work means, mm -hmm. where you're creating a more engaging workplace. A more productive, absolutely more enjoyable, and one where people feel valued for the skills and expertise and contributions that they bring. What an amazing outcome! And honestly, it, that is your role as a leader. Yeah, and that is that is. I mean, you know, just as we're talking about this idea of crushing assumptions or changing assumptions and the ego getting out of the way and like cha fundamentally changing how organizations think about leadership, all of that, like this is the, I think a key part of it, which is, you know, what, what if it's not all about you? Yeah. Right. So getting back, back to, to us, Ken and, Ken and Kenneth, right? Like what if it's not all about you? What if this isn't actually about you at all? Right. What, what if uh, the team and you together are actually better than any one hero, any one person, right? Who, you know, that this idea that like, we are going to uh, measure our success by one person's heroics, right? One person being br brutally, like unbelievably smart and, and effective, or or that we're gonna like not even know what we're measuring and not understand what we're trying to do, but Darn it, we're going to be in those chairs. Well, let me name let me name a thing you just touched on that I think is really important, and it is for, for leaders to set aside for a moment, or at least to recognize, what if you don't get the credit? Yeah, right. This goes back to the ego thing and being the smartest person in the room and, you know, having to create space for other people to get credit. You know, I always look at this and say, look, I... I honestly go back to, I care about the outcomes. I don't care about the credit. I don't care where the idea came from. I care that we delivered what it is that's important. Yeah. And when we're setting out in, and well, heck, whether it's business, academia, like all kinds of things, the outcome is why we started on that path in the first place. Mm. But we let ourselves get distracted by credit and by, you know, the heroics and by ego and all those other things. Can I, can I take a quick story? I know we're wrapping yeah. up soon, but can I take yeah. a quick story? Yeah. When I was a very young teacher, so I was like 20, I would say 23, maybe mm. 24, 
um, and I taught at an all boys school, boarding school. And I was the theater guy. I was like, I was running the theater programs. That was my job. But they didn't know what to do with me in the spring because there was no play. So they put me coaching the lacrosse team. The like varsity B lacrosse team, which is like the, for those of you who don't know, like when you have so many boys and so many kids playing a, a sport, you have to like have levels in varsity B was like the level where they threw all the kids who couldn't make varsity and were too old to be on JV and were just basically <laughs> troublemakers. So I was in that, that group and I had no idea. I played lacrosse in high school, but like for two years, I had no idea what I was doing. And the first year, my goal was let's just have fun. Let's just have fun. Let's just goof around, have fun, like play the games. I got skewered. I got skewered by the best kids on the team. I got skewered by the other coaches. I got skewered by the parents. We went 3-11, and it was, it was like I was embarrassed. And I swore to God that I would never do that again. I was going to – and I got advice from the coaches. They told me to do this. You got to be a hard ass. You got to do all this stuff. I read all these books on coaching. I did all this stuff. I, I made all the kids. The next year, I, I grew a, a goatee. I like <laughs> – you know, I like you're creating your image. <laughs> I had all image. I I like made them like run suicides. I yelled at them in practice. Like I, you know, I ran drills. I was miserable. The kids were miserable. Everybody was miserable. It was a miserable, miserable year. But darn it, we went three and eleven. <laughs> <laughs> and I walked away from that, and I thought to myself, two things I learned from this experience. One is I'm a horrible coach, right? <laughs> not notwithstanding what I do for a living yeah, right, right now, yeah. but like a sports coach, like I'm a horrible sports coach. And two was it's not about those things. All those things I did, both the first year and the second year were about me. And I wasn't actually interested in the, what the kids were able to do. I wasn't actually interested in trying to figure out Back what up. they wanted to do. Say that again. That it wasn't I, all this time, those first two years – whether whatever it was I was trying to do, it was about me. And the realization was that it wasn't actually about me, that it was about these kids. And that if you could make it about the kids, and I've seen coaches do that, I've seen sports coaches do this, and it is a beautiful thing. When a coach can be on the sidelines and just be with those kids and be confident that win or lose, his or her ego is not at stake that that coach has the respect and love of those kids and those teams win. It's amazing. I, you know, and I just, I, I, I think it was a great, thank you for sharing that story. I, was, I can't picture you in a goatee, but awesome. The thread through all of this is all of these moments, these kind of perception shifting moments that we've talked about, organizational perception, you know, my personal perception, this one has been about, oh, it's not always about me. And if I really focus on what this situation is truly about, whether it's this relationship, the team, my company, the customer, suddenly my chances of winning go through the roof. So true. So true. And, and people rise up. They rise up to the occasion. They, 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 they discover things about themselves. I've seen you do this with your teams. I've seen you do this with, with, uh, people that you've worked with who have left you to go to other companies and you've continued to support them yeah. and cheerlead them, right? Because they know that you believe in them. 
Yeah, I mean, my first job as a leader is to help others be successful. Right. My second job as a leader is to help them realize that that would be working on my team. Right. <laughs> my first right. job is to help them be successful in whatever they go on to do. And I think this is this is perfect. This is kind of where I wanted to to pull on this thread of what is it that allows us to challenge our assumptions about what it is to be successful, to be a leader, to be you know, connected to build relationships and suddenly and, and break through into something that unlocks that next level or help others around us do that. So, so we all want to stay awake to the opportunities when we see these moments, when these moments come up they, and they're usually embarrassing or scary or scary. Right. So when we see these moments and you're in this moment and you feel that you're having a choice between this, like, you know, do I red pill? In other words, let go of these assumptions and see what might happen. Do I let go right? of what I think is safety? Let go of what I think is safety, what I think is success, what I think I need to be or who I am or who you are. Or do I keep doing what, I, what I've always done and get whatever, what I've always gotten? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, a great conversation, Seth. Thanks for, for sharing. I think these are, these are great uh, moments that have just, they just continue to reinforce to me that, you know, and we all have assumptions. We all base a lot of our uh, choices, decisions, relationships on those, but being open to that yeah. opportunity to challenge ourselves and recognize those moments really help us break through to the next level of leadership. Agreed. Thank you so much, Ken, for taking the time today, as always, in having this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. This has been uh, a podcast of It's Not Personal. Yeah, and next time, you know, we're going to come back with another session that I love. It's I'll Always Respect You. <laughs> Question mark. Question mark. <laughs> Which, again, I think is going to build off a lot of these conversations. Really looking forward to it. Thanks again, Seth. Yeah, thanks again, Ken.